Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Darylise Lyons. In this episode, we're talking about how the inequalities in our criminal justice system have led to the disproportionate deaths and incarceration of Black and Brown Americans. One of the things that, that, that hinder our abilities to progress in anything we do is people look at the color of our skin first. And not until they get to know us or realize who we are or what we are do they really know that we have the talents and the abilities and the capacity to do whatever task we're being asked to do. They become so focused on the color of our skin that they bypass uh, their ability to learn us. On February 23rd, 2020, Ahmad Arbery, an unarmed 25-year-old man, was shot and killed while jogging. On March 13th, a female EMT named Brianna Taylor was gunned down in her home. Less than two months later, on May 25th, George Floyd was handcuffed lying face down on a city street, when Derek Chauvin kneeled on his neck until he died. It took eight minutes and 46 seconds for Floyd to die. Eight minutes and 46 seconds, during which no one intervened. Arbery, Taylor, and Floyd were murdered by police officers. Why? Because they were Black, and because since the inception of our nation— Black lives have been determined not to matter. I'll tell you the truth. I experienced police brutality almost all my whole, you know what I mean, young teenage and adult life in Philadelphia. I then went through the Frank Rizzo and his brother Rizzo back in the 70s, the Wilson Good, even though I was like what you can call a criminal, but still and yet there's times when I'm just walking around my business. Yeah, well, it, it's about time. And I, I really feel... You know what I mean? Saddened about seeing all these young people and and and, and these these black women and these black uh, men getting killed by these cops. That was Russell Murray, currently serving time at a Pennsylvania correctional facility. As someone who has violated the law, Russell can speak to the issue of police brutality. Now, here's someone sworn to uphold the law, speaking about the same. Look what's what's happened. You know, people getting wrongfully killed. Excessive use of force, planning of drugs. Happens every day, and it's being exposed. That was Delaware River Port Authority Police Captain Edward Cobbs Jr., whose voice you heard at the beginning of this episode. Captain Cobbs, a black officer, understands all too well that the criminalization of blackness is a manifestation of learned prejudice. A three year old, a four year old, doesn't know the difference between black and white, doesn't know the N-word, unless it's told to them. When we think about racism, we often think about it in terms of morality, good people versus bad people. Bad people don't do racist things. Um, and I think even though we might have more knowledge beyond that, we still c- kind of go back to um, 
and I think out of our fear of getting things wrong, still making judgments about situations and people around intention and goodness. And so um, the problem with that is it neglects the history of how racism um, has been systemic in society. That was Dr. Howard Stevenson, Constance Clayton Professor of Urban Education, Professor of Africana Studies in the Human Development and Quantitative Methods Division of the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania, Executive Director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative, and Director of Forward Promise. All human beings, moral, immoral, or somewhere in between, have biases that they are likely not aware of. This is problematic even in the best of circumstances. It becomes even more so under high-stake, high-stress situations, life-or-death situations, such as officer-involved shootings. The challenge of fight and fright and flight is that when you're in it, you're kind of stuck, right? You're, you're really at 8, 9, or 10, technically. So you don't have full access to memory. You lose peripheral vision and hearing, all the kinds of skills you need to make a good judgment. And so this is where noticing yourself is related to decision-making. If you don't notice that you're 8, 9, or 10, you're really a, a dangerous person because you can't really track what happens from one moment to the next very well. This is what I think happens with police and youth or youth of color who police have been socialized to believe that they are more dangerous, whether they have a weapon or not, right? And there's research on that. Um, without interrogating those thoughts or challenging those views, when they are really in a dangerous situation, you only have those options of fight, flight, fright. And most police officers train out of fright, right? They're trained to act um, at the level of eight, nine, or 10. So unless you practice how to calculate, locate, communicate, breathe, and exhale during your eight, nine, and tens, you won't do very well with it. So that's what we try to do. We try to create scenarios in which you're close to your eight, nines, and tens, and then ask you to process the strategy until it becomes natural. I sat down with Salah Muhammad, podcast host, writer, and self-proclaimed disruptor of the status quo. This was younger, so, you know, a lot of times I would go to work and get out, walk out if I was taking public transportation or um, if I was even just walking to my car. Um, I, you know, I wore a hoodie if it was cold or I wore a hat on my head in a particular way that me, that associated with me by, by stereotyping as a criminal. I've been stopped and late for work just because I was wearing a gray hoodie. That's it, you know, stopped and pulled over, had to take out my ID, had to, you know, tell them where I was going, where I just left, what's my next destination, you know, taking my name and address down. Are you sure you live here? Um, I've gotten that leaving my house before, showing my showing my ID um, with my address on it and, and asking if I'm sure I live here, um, you know. And, you know, I've, I've been late for work. I've been uh, late to meetings um, because of it. I've, you know, I, I've had, I, there's a particular areas or uh, communities in, in, in Pennsylvania that I 
just don't generally drive them because I know I'm going to get pulled over. Delaware County is is huge for it. I I know there's a I have a network of friends who we all just talk about how, you know, be careful how you're driving or where you're going when you're driving through Delaware County because, you know, there's a high chance that you're going to get pulled over when you're driving. Um and you you know it. So you start to at least for me, you start to change your behaviors, right? Like you change how you dress when you're when you're out in public, right? Like you, you know, okay, do I need my hood on today? Do I feel like dealing with certain interactions based on where I am? Um, maybe I wear the hoodie, but maybe I don't put the hood up, even though, you know, I, I like my hood, right? I get to yeah. my own little comfortable shell. You know, do I do I wear my, my blazer today because I'm going, um, you know, to a place where I don't necessarily need it, but I know the area I'm going into. So maybe I wear that. If I'm riding in a car with someone with tinted windows, you know what? Maybe I, I'll take my ride today. Maybe I'll take my own car today because I don't want a chance being pulled over and, and being involved in that, that you know, experience. Um, those are all things that, as a black person, I think about when I go out into to public, not just like if I'm near a police station or 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 if I, I'm doing something illegal, because that's always the assumption, right? If you're not doing anything illegal, you shouldn't be worried about it. It's just, no, that's just the public. I'm going out in public. Do I want to be late for work today? Do I want to get stopped in inconvenience? Because someone said that someone, a black person in a gray hoodie did X to them, and now... I'm being cast as a perpetrator for just walking out of my door. I can't tell you how many times that has happened to me. Salah and my conversation about racial profiling turned to a larger discussion about white privilege. You can't have these kind of conversations without eventually getting to the point of the original sin of our country, which was slavery. We never really reconciled that as a country. You know, we've gone through movements where we've tried to reconcile it, but there's always a revert back. There's always another system put in place to reinforce those stereotypes. When we've had reconstruction, right, there was another system put back into place where, you know, we had uh, the the country or the the states that seceded from, from the Union started to put in sheriffs and round up black people for different for different random crimes or, or for being a certain way or being in the wrong place. We had segregation and Jim Crow laws that, again, created this caste system of putting black people in a particular place or, or uh, subscribing them to a particular behavior or associating them with a particular lifestyle. And then we've won, even when we had the civil rights laws passed and we had the civil rights movement, we, you know, again, averted that attention to how we've built this prison industrial complex and how we tackle criminal justice. And again, it's recasting black people as a particular lifestyle, you know, to wear hoodies, to, to dress a certain way, to sit outside too long, to, to just look suspicious is an association with blackness. And we've never really reconciled that original sin. It all goes back to that.
It might be uncomfortable or even threatening to think about the enduring impact of slavery, but it's necessary to understanding how and why Black people are dying as a result of the individual acts of violence that stem from systemic racism. This country has an undeniable history of seeing Black people as less than white ones. Just ask any high school student about the Three-Fifths Compromise, an agreement between Southern and Northern states reached during the Constitutional Convention of 1787 that determined that every Black life would count as a fraction of a white one. The dehumanization of Black people was inextricably linked to economics. In 1850, the average price for a slave was $400. If we account for inflation, $400 in 1850 is the equivalent of $13,148.41 in 2020. was the value placed on the life of a Black human being. And when people are seen as property, their lives are irrelevant and can be taken from them at any time. Slavery may have ended, but its enduring impacts, mental, emotional, spiritual, and financial, remain all too evident. It is essential for Americans especially white Americans, to understand the enduring impact of historical racism because it is not past, it is all too present. Out of every 100,000 deaths, 96 of them will be black men at the hands of an officer of the law, while only 39 white men will die in an officer-involved encounter. This is staggering, especially when you consider that whites account for 77% of the population and Blacks account for 12%. Out of every racial group, Black men and boys face the highest risk of being killed by police. In fact, as recently as 2019, statistics showed that 1 in 1,000 Black men will die during a police encounter. August Terrier, one of the innovators behind Songs in the Key of Free, a project that brings music into prisons, has a lot to say about the injustices of our criminal justice system. We are selecting out a group of people, and because we live in a racist nation, because there are deep, deep racist roots in this nation, because there is structural racism that, you know, and Michelle Alexander wrote a beautiful, eloquent, powerful book about this. It says it way better than I could, um, The New Jim Crow, that, you know, the mass incarceration today is the new Jim Crow. It is built on the back of slavery, right? And locking up far more black and brown people than we are white people. There's a reason for that, right? So the, the underpinnings of prison that to me are so far reaching and so Um, deleterious and truly dangerous are that we are assigning criminality to millions of Americans, mostly ones who are non-white. Senator Sharif Street of the 3rd Senatorial District of Philadelphia grew up in North Philadelphia, and he told me that one of the driving forces behind his decision to go into politics was his desire to affect criminal justice reform. We don't live in a society where the past effects of race 
don't impact where we are in terms of class. So the intersection of race and class are complicated, but the reality is that think that there are lots of policies which hurt certain classes of people, and those classes of people when they're on the lower end of the spectrum disproportionately contain black and brown people because of historic racism. Black people account for only 12% of the U.S. population, yet they make up approximately 40% of the nation's prison inmates. There's only three things they care about. They call it the three C's, care, custody, and control. The three C's, which I'd never heard about until Russell mentioned them to me, are a well-known set of governing principles within the penal system. Care refers to the assurance that incarcerated persons will be treated humanely. Custody describes the period of time a person will be stripped of their freedom. And control? Well, that's obvious. Unfortunately, the disproportionate doling out of custody and control against Black Americans perpetuates the same system of subjugation as slavery. It is a sad fact that in this country, blackness has been criminalized. And until we own and acknowledge the deeply rooted nature of American racism, we will never put an end to the cycle of violence and victimization. Senator Street offered the example of how the system's response to the quote-unquote offense of smoking marijuana differs based on race and socioeconomic status. I'm a, one of the co-prime, co-prime sponsors of the legislation to legalize cannabis. The reality is that <coughs> cannabis is something that the majority of people, you know, it's sort of like the joke in every, every movie start from the 70s and 80s all the way through to present, saying like the, the people with, uh, with weed, and nobody thinks of them as real criminals who deserve to be behind bars. And, but the reality is five to six, you're five to six times more likely to be incarcerated, I mean, four to five times more likely to be incarcerated uh, for being involved or prosecuted for being involved in a cannabis-related activity if you are black or brown than if you are um, white in Pennsylvania, five to six times more likely nationally. And that's despite almost equal levels of cannabis uh, usage. Uh, amongst amongst people of all racial and economic demographics. Um, that's crazy. Most people don't even think that we still lock people up for weed or people can get records for weed, but they do. So what, do what do you attribute that disparity to? Well, a couple of things. I mean, well, there's a whole bunch of things, but I think it's just the, the general generalizations around, around society. For, for instance, in North Philadelphia, okay, you got, uh, and I'll use, I use North Philly because it's where I'm from and where I represent. Yeah. But for years, and uh, it's a little different under D.A. Krasner, but prior to Krasner, for years, you would have, um, uh, you say you got some kids walking down the street from the neighborhood, poor, black and brown, and they get stopped by the cops. Cops pick them up, arrest them, they get, they get booked. And the system says, we need to go ahead and prosecute these kids now for this marijuana crime to make sure that they don't they don't graduate to more serious drugs. So we need to send a message to them right now to save their life. And then, so same situation, a couple of white college kids from Temple, upper middle class, get picked up for the exact same amount of marijuana, doing the exact same thing. And the system, the cops say, DAs, everyone involved in the system says, we don't want to ruin these kids' lives by giving them a record for using marijuana 
not that serious. These kids have their whole life in front of us. We don't want to prosecute them for using marijuana. So there's a sense that when you're poor, black, and brown, and you commit a low-level crime early in life, that you should be prosecuted severely so that to teach you a lesson not to, to graduate to more serious crimes. But the, but the underlying assumption is that that's the trajectory you were on. And if you're middle upper middle class and happen to be white, the assumption is that you are probably on a trajectory to do good things in life and and you don't want to ruin a person's life with a, being saddled with a criminal record. The senator is not saying that members of the police force are not earnest in their desires to improve the lives of individuals. In fact, his example demonstrates the opposite. It speaks to a desire to affect a positive outcome for both middle-class white offenders and the lower-class black one. The problem is the underlying assumption that a black youth is destined for a criminal life and a white youth is destined for a productive one. Russell's story broke my heart. I was 13 years old. I was uh, about three, four months before I turned 14. My mother was already sick for like three years with bronchitis. She wouldn't stop smoking cigarettes. And my father was an alcoholic and real abusive, and he'd come in. So one night, they got into a real fight. Uh, we all jumped in. I got one brother and one sister. You know, he was 14, I was 13, and my sister was 12. And my sister was, I mean, my mother was already sick, so she passed away in the middle of the night, and I was with her. So that affected me in ways I had no idea. You know what I mean? I was already sneaking around drinking my father's liquor and stuff. But then I started smoking uh, marijuana and weed. Then I started selling weed. Then I was back then, this is in the early, the mid-70s, I started doing hash, opium. I just thought, progressed. Then I started snorting coke. Then in the 80, was it 81? I started freebasing, smoking, and then that's when it just took off and I went crazy. A part of me can't help but think that if an affluent white teenager's mother died and he turned to drugs and alcohol and began acting out, the system would have sent him to treatment rather than to jail. At the very least, he'd have been able to afford adequate legal representation and not gotten fooled into serving more time than he'd been promised. Because like one time I had a deal with one of the judges. I was supposed to do what's called, uh, what is it called? intermediate uh, uh, something that was supposed to replace prison time. I was supposed to go to the halfway house for uh, eight months. Then when I show up for court for the sentencing, they said, I got to give you a mandatory three to six. I said, hold up. I thought we had a deal because I took an open plea. And now you're telling me it went from eight months to a halfway house to three to six years in prison. Oh, my God. And did you actually have to do three to six years in prison? Well, what happened was I did two and a half years, and they let me go on pre-release. They sent me to a halfway house for seven months, and I went out on parole from the halfway house. But so you were supposed to be, you were only supposed to get like eight months in the eight halfway months. house. Right. And why, like, what what happened so the, with that? Did you not DA, get that? The DA came to court talking about he got evidence and a witness saying that I was still selling drugs. You know what I'm saying? But the whole thing was, you know, whether it was true or not, I said I had a deal. And you're supposed to have a concrete, you know what I mean? When you write, when you have me sign something and you say that's the deal, that's the deal. That's just a way of how they sucker people into signing papers 
admitting a crime and then later on they tell me, oh, I got a mitigated range and this and that and I have to sentence you to this and that. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. Now, are these kinds of things, like things that are going on with the people that you are incarcerated with? Like, are these common stories? Yeah, it's very common. It's very common. Let's be clear. The point is not that Russell didn't commit any crimes or that people don't make mistakes and deserve to be held accountable. He was actually quite adamant about accepting responsibility. Basically, almost every case that I had, I have several cases that I had that time, extending all the way back to the 80s. Well, you know, I mean, when I was like, you know, I mean, uh, doing drugs, running the streets and acting a fool and breaking into places, yeah, I admitted to all the, you know, the things that I did in court. So I had to do the time. The point is that many incarcerated members of our society are ending up behind bars because their economic circumstances will not allow them to effectively advocate for themselves. And often it's these economic circumstances that are responsible for their criminal actions in the first place. For instance, I'll tell you, I was in law school. There's a guy that lives next to us. He was a uh, a good guy, decent guy. He um, he was dating this girl. He was a little older than me, so I was about I was about 22. He was probably about 24. Um, and uh, he was dating this girl, and he was a security guard. Um, he didn't have much money, but he had his own place, and he had a little beat-up old car. And his girlfriend lived in public housing development uh, a couple blocks away. And uh, she... She got pregnant and had a baby. And because of the limited set of resources, people in the neighborhood suggested to her that she sign up for um, for welfare. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she did. And, you know, you're talking low-information communities. So nobody explained to her that because her children's father was in, was, in fact, in her life, and he was giving her money that she was supposed to fill out forms to disclose um, his involvement. You just go down there and they just have you, they don't even ask, they didn't even ask about a father, they just assumed no father. So no one at the, no one at the county uh, assistant's office asked her about um, any of this. And I was a first-year law student. Um, and I had known these people growing up because I was living in a house that my dad owned and, and that he had lived in uh, most of my childhood. And, and my mom only lived a few blocks away. And so I knew these folks for years. And so the baby's getting older. I guess the baby's not quite a year. And here comes the uh, welfare fraud unit coming to her to ask her for information on um, the whereabouts of her children's father because he was a deadbeat. She said, responded, he wasn't a deadbeat. He was in her life. Why would they say he's a deadbeat? And then they yeah. pointed to these forms that she had signed and that she had given, she had taken all this money, which wasn't a lot of money, but either she had to return the money, go to jail, or they would prosecute uh, the father. They told her she would give him some time to think about it. That's what they told her. So she talked to um, him. And he was talking to me, and he said, I'm going to have to go to jail for a little bit. He said, why? He said, well, I can't have my children's mother. 
my child's mother, Sonny was a son, my son's mother go to jail. He's not even a year old. He needs his mom where he needs me. And she got this money. She didn't know that that was fraud. And they say if I say if I go to jail for being a deadbeat, then she didn't commit a fraud. But we don't have the money to give it back. Spent it on the baby. So he went to jail for a year. So she visited him in jail, and he came out. He went. To, he was on saying that he was went to jail for being a, a deadbeat dad. And uh, he came out, and then he can get. Of course, he lost his job as a security guard because he can't be a security guard. He just came home from prison. And he had to figure out life a year later. So he was gone most of my second year. And uh, he came back before I was finished my second year. I think he was gone less than a year. And then uh, and he came out, and now he had a record. And so he goes into life, and the only mistake that they made was they had they um, they were poor, and they lived in the neighborhood, and they had a child. And the public assistance programs that were set up to provide some assistance to him turned into a criminalization of one of them. He had to go through all of life with the burden of a criminal record and having spent probably nine, ten months of his life in jail because a, a what was basically a clerical error for a relatively small amount of money, because in that period of time, I doubt it was more than a few hundred dollars a month, maybe six, seven, let's call it oh, $600 God. a month, so nine months, like $5,400 that yeah. they received in public assistance that they didn't have to pay back. There is no payment plan to pay it back. And so he had to go to jail. And those stories and stories like that are not, like, super rare and uncommon. It is more than likely that the majority of police and judges are doing the best they can and trying their hardest. Yet the same power dynamics that once allowed the ownership of human beings now perpetuate their incarceration. I know a group of friends, uh, one of my cousins, whose uh, father was a doctor, and he lived out in a uh, what's uh, in Bluebell. And he and his friends, I only know what his father knows, he and his friends were all picked up um, joyriding. That's what they call it in the suburbs when young people steal a car and ride around mm-hmm. in it, right? So they in, 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 in North Philly, they call that grand theft auto. If you study neurobiology even a little, or if you've made it past early adulthood, you've probably figured out that the human brain isn't fully formed until somewhere in our 20s or early 30s. Because of this, young people often find it difficult to evaluate the consequences of their actions and to make decisions that are in their best interests. This is true of all people, regardless of race. So recidivism rates and all of that fall off for people um, of all backgrounds after 35. And after 50, there's almost no recidivism rate. But, but the problem is, if you're 35 and you grew up in the neighborhood where they started prosecuting you at 16, you got almost 20 years of, uh, of, 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 of prosecutorial history. Um, whereas, you know, if you're in a middle-class community, you made some mistakes, you went joyriding, you got picked up with marijuana, you got in a fight at a party, 
those are three things that, you know, people would say, you know, I was a pretty good kid. If you're middle class, you're a lawyer, doctor, developer, teacher, journalist. I was a pretty good kid. I had some bad scrapes. I remember one time I went joyriding. Another time I got in this bad fight. Another time I got picked up for smoking weed. That doesn't sound too terrible. Well, if, you're, if your record says grand theft, auto, drug, you're a drug offender, and you and you committed a violent assault. Mm-hmm. Well, now you've had major you've you committed a major property crime, a drug crime, and you're violent and you're a violent offender. For those same three things: fight of the party, uh, marijuana, and joyriding. And and so in the one case, you're a good person who made, who had a couple of useful indiscretions. In the other case, you're a person who's committed every kind of serious crime known to, known to our criminal justice system. I spoke to an aspiring police officer who preferred to remain anonymous about his experiences growing up in neighborhoods that are predominantly black and brown. I, I'm not I'm not of the opinion that, you know, all cops are just see these, you know, these racist assholes that don't like black people. I mean, look, there are probably there are probably guys like that. I'm not going to sit here and act like they probably don't exist. They do. But would I sit here and say that every time I think I think of a police officer, I think of a guy that's just waiting to kill black guys? No, not really. I think they may exist. They definitely exist to some degree. But that's not the thought process that I put out there. But there's a, again, there's a mistrust there. That's in me as well. And uh, I actually want to say this earlier. And that's a big reason as to why I want to join. So a young version of me or a little girl, a little guy that's dealing with a situation isn't more afraid to call the police than he is to continue dealing whatever dangerous situation is going on. Here's what this aspiring officer told me about the difference between how he sees law enforcement and how some of his friends see law enforcement. Remember, this is someone who wants to be a police officer. You know, I, I've had conversations with, you know, white counterparts who, are, who literally just don't understand the concept of not calling the police as far as a dangerous situation. They're like, you know, their thought process is like, okay, dangerous situation, call the police. For me, it's like, what? No. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. I want to tell you about an emotional intelligence program called Next Level Trainings. In 2019, I personally went through Next Level Trainings, and in all sincerity, the Demystifying Diversity podcast would not exist if I hadn't. The leadership trainings opened my eyes to some blind spots I had in my life. They increased my capacity to give and receive love, to forgive myself and others, and to contribute more to this world. They really helped me, both personally and professionally. Next Level Trainings uses experiential exercises that are designed to help you to see yourself as you are, shift your perspective, and start forming sustainable habits that will transform your life and, by extension, your community and the world. In a supportive environment, you'll come to see yourself and others through a more open, powerful, and freeing lens. I can say from my own firsthand experience that the trainings increased my capacity for love, connection, and vulnerability. They were life-changing, and I can't recommend next-level trainings enough. 
And Next Level Trainings is offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners $50 off on Shift, their introductory virtual training. To add even more value to their offer, if you register for and attend the Shift online training now, you'll receive a free voucher to their in-person discovery training valued at $495. The voucher can be used when pandemic gathering restrictions lift. So go to nextleveltrainings.com diversity. That's nextleveltrainings with an S slash diversity and enter the promo code diversity. You'll be glad you did. Speaking of savings, for most of us, when it comes to money, we have no clear direction. We know what we want financially, but we get confused as to how to get there. John and Patty Lavin, the owners of Lavin and Associates, a branch of Primerica, are committed to offering all people the opportunity to achieve financial freedom. Lavin and Associates offers a complimentary cutting-edge financial needs analysis that works sort of like a GPS, or I guess you can think of it as a money map. By giving you a clear route from where you are to where you want to go, this analysis empowers you to become properly protected, debt-free, and financially independent, so you can worry less about money and enjoy your life more. I had a financial planning session with John a couple of years ago, and I went from $0 in the bank to more than $10,000, plus a retirement account. To set up a time to speak with John, a financial advisor for 40 years, and receive your free financial needs analysis, call him at 610-453-2331 or email him at johnlavin at me.com. That's J-O-N-L-A-V-I-N at me.com. And let him know the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Most people who become involved in law enforcement do so out of a sincere desire to protect and serve. I would hope to believe, because of the code of ethics that we stand by, that you're doing your best to protect and serve. But who exactly are they serving? My co-collaborator, Anna Marie Jones, spoke to Christopher Flanagan, superintendent of police in Radnor Township. You have to know your community. Every community is different. Every community has different challenges, yet they have the same challenges. But you also have to know your officers. And that's very important because you have to know the people who are helping enforce the law, who signed up with your department and make sure that they have the proper education, make sure that they understand who they're working for. And that's the people of the community. When officers policing a community are not familiar with the needs of that community, do not come from that community and have biases about the people living there, it can be difficult the um, exposure to diversity, right? So there's some people that live wherever that have never experienced a conversation with a person of color. And now you throw them in the middle of Camden, New Jersey, where the population is over 60% minority. Right? You can't teach that in, you can't teach that in Canada. You can't teach that. That's something that you have, that's a learned behavior from your childhood. A lot of people don't have exposure to people of color. 
And even on exposure people of color, that's a problem. I asked Captain Cobbs about his experiences as an officer and whether he ever felt torn between the color of his skin and the color of his uniform. From the day you walk into the police academy to the day you graduate and move on to your career, the thing that's always bred into you is you're blue. Mm. You're blue. You're blue. You're blue. You're blue. Right? So, and then that mindset gets into you. You know, you're blue. And then you have, right, uh, 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 an occupation that is predominantly white. Right? But blue. Blue. Blue, right? And then you have uh, uh, people of color. Right? Who have had a, a, a long history, right, of the injustices of law enforcement and public safety, right? And now we deal with those on our community side and on our personal side of life. And so we constantly battle. These battles happen all the time where you have blue and black, blue and black. By and large, the black community has been traumatized as a result of interactions with the police who, when it comes to Black offenders, presume guilt instead of innocence. This is the aspiring officer speaking about widespread mistrust of police by Black and Brown Americans. It's not baseless. It's not baseless. Uh, the, the distrust and the anger is, is not baseless at all. Salam Muhammad again. You know, as we, we look at how, we look at police interactions and we look at you know, what is expected of police and some of the inherent stereotypes that is in all of us, you know, not just police officers, not just white police officers, right? Like black, Asian, um, Latinx, no matter what demographic you are, but also just me as a, as a, as a private citizen, as I'm interacting and walking down the street, you know, there are stereotypes within me when I see police. The experiences that Captain Cobbs referred to as a long history of injustices of law enforcement against public safety, are well documented. From slave patrols, to the Ku Klux Klan, to the violent responses to the nonviolent civil rights protests of the 1960s, and up until today, these abuses have led to a lot of fear and anger in communities of color, which can make it difficult for Black officers, who want to serve their communities, but are seen by many as traitors to their race. I haven't lost any friends at all because of my kind. None. But I know some that have. I actually spoke with an officer today. Uh, um, he was a sheriff, excuse me. He was a sheriff. And he, uh, he said, I told him, I was like, look, I'm going to be wearing that uniform soon. He was like, he's like, awesome. He's like, that's great. He's like, just be prepared for those you, you know, those you're out there to protect. And honestly, it's your own people who are going to attack you and ask you, why are you wearing that? What are you doing wearing that? You know, it's the people who look like you when you're you're black and trying to be an officer and, you know, trying to make a difference in that way, you're going to get a lot of flack and you'll get more from your own people than, you know, than the other side. I met a police officer the other, a few weeks ago, and he, he, you know, Philadelphia is, is in a very particular element where, you know, murder rate has been on a rise year over year. Um, but at the same time, he also understands that concentration of poverty 
is very uh, prevalent in our communities. Yeah. And going into certain neighborhoods, you know, treating people a certain way, it's it's tough because he, he you know, one of the things he said to me was, look, I know that people expect me as a cop to be hard on them. I know people expect me as a cop to to crack down the law or throw them up against the wall. But at the same time, I know how it is. I come from poverty. I'm a black person. It is very difficult just engaging with that community because they see me as the other, but I see them as brother and sister. And I think you just perfectly encapsulated the dilemma that is, it feels like a unique dilemma to people of color in law enforcement. That is not the same dilemma I mean, you know, people who are not of color have a different dilemma in law right. enforcement when right. it, when encountering race. And yeah. um yeah, go ahead. I was going to say you have you have there's two identities there. There's two identities that are speaking very different to each other, you know. You have one identity saying that you have a job to do, you have to go into these communities and you have to to police them. And you know, which is part of the problem with that that group with with police but then the, my other identity is telling me to understand them better and to connect with them more and to give them you know someone to count on or wrap their arms around them and be there for them but how we expect police to operate and how the police force works it's just not set up that way we could be the healing when you're feeling all alone we could be the reason to find the strength to carry on in a world that's so divided we shall overcome we can be the healing we can be the flower in the gun we can be the healing we can be the flower in the gun i have come to believe that any successful strategy for positive change will involve hiring more black officers, as well as looking to our existing black and brown police for their insights and advice. After all, it is black officers who have found it within themselves to reconcile their identities as black and blue. And as much of a struggle as this may be, they are also uniquely equipped to understand how and why many people fear law enforcement while at the same time understanding the need to uphold the legal system and ensure public safety. I know a bunch of strong, tough guys that I served with, black guys that I served with, and a few of them have joined the police force. And I know a bunch of tough dudes back where I'm from, right in Philly, strong, very smart, and street smart like all hell, who can do the job. You put those same men in those positions, we're not dealing with the same issues. Not to say that the problem would be fixed. No, it goes higher than just policemen and, you know, in other gigs. But you start putting strong, tough, smart men in those roles, smart black men in those roles in their own community, you're not going to deal with guys like this. You know why? Because had it not, I don't know the guy's name, but there were four men in the situation that just happened in Minneapolis. And then there was one, uh, um, I don't know what race he was, uh, stopping the uh, people who were coming around and, you know, telling them to back up, et cetera. If you put one of those guys, you put me in that situation, 
come, you know, get off his neck. If you got to put your knee into his shoulder, his back, I don't care. All right? He's not going to die from that. Get off his neck. There's no need for that. It's not, I, if I'm correct, that's not even a correct, a correct position to have someone, especially considering he's already handcuffed. So you put a strong black guy in that situation, one that's mentally tough as well, that man's alive. In Anna Marie and my interview with Dr. Stevenson, we talked about his experience working with police departments in crisis and supporting them in moving beyond racist attitudes and beginning to connect with people as human beings. Dr. Stevenson, yeah. what is it like to approach a police department? Do they come to you or do you come to them and say, I have this program to teach de-escalation techniques? Mm-hmm. Do you feel a sense of vulnerability when you're doing that or your staff? Well, How does that yeah. work? Yeah, I mean, the three times that we've done it, and one we actually have now in Baltimore, we're working with uh, some folks from Johns Hopkins, and um, very different than the first time. The first time uh, it was in the Bronx with Bronx police, and the mayor had been influenced by faith leaders to have a conversation because the violent stuff was so bad, and police brutality was bad, and the community was open. So... We were walking into a war zone we didn't realize, in a sense, and it was supposed to be rookies. And in the last, the day before, the police um, included veterans, and they situated them in the room, in the library in the Bronx, um, at every table. And we noticed that they were hazing any of the rookies who would respond to our questions. They also put two monitors in the middle of the room who were hostile for four hours, literally four hours. And it was a four-hour session. That was the first thing that was wrong. It shouldn't have been that long, right? But um, eventually we got through it. But the first two hours, it was sheer hell. And it was very vulnerable. Nobody was laughing. Some people wanted to laugh, you could see, but they were afraid to. For stuff that was funny, that we were using our best stuff, to try to reduce this tension. Um, storytelling is what we used. Um, and there were a couple, there was one gay police officer who was openly gay, who had spent time with other black officers as, as a partner. So he understood the kind, he could tell stories about what he witnessed. But it wasn't until the third hour that, um, when I asked them, do you ever have a child or niece or nephew, someone you care about, who's ever been harassed by a police officer? And it's like the room turned into, it got silent. Um, because half of them were officers of color. And they all began to consider their own narratives. That is, I, even though I'm a police officer, I don't have the power to control what could happen to my loved one with other police and then, and then the ice broke, and then we were able, some people started to cry because they realized the powerlessness of that. And then we got to talking about what's it like to be a police officer, right, and be vulnerable. Police are vulnerable, extremely vulnerable, to the dangers they face every day and to the impact of their own unaddressed trauma. Every year, the single greatest cause of death for law enforcement officers is suicide. And those are just the officers who get so desperate they decide to take their own lives. There are many others whose mental health is fragile, 
who are coping with the pains and pressures of the job in a variety of different self-destructive and overtly violent ways. The culture of machismo makes it difficult for many officers to seek mental and emotional support. That's the poor that bravado that we, that we carry. Here's Superintendent Christopher Flanagan again. We had a suicide in the police department. Oh, I'm so, sorry. so it was a it was a shocking event. Shocking. It rocked our department to the core. He was a brother officer, he was a friend, he was a father, he was a son. And um, we're taking that responsibility seriously. Um, this is a so tough sorry. job where you're not able to decompress, as many are. One in one thousand black men will be killed by a police officer and police are more likely to die of suicide than while performing their duties. These facts may not be causal, but it's likely that there is at least some correlation. Paul Rees, graduate of Yale Divinity School, spoke to me about some of the deeply rooted philosophical investments in whiteness that have serious and sometimes fatal consequences. There's a physician, Dr. Jonathan Metzl, who wrote a a fantastic book um, that opened my brain called Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. He's a a doctor from Missouri, and he went back to his hometown and a bunch of other small communities to address the fact that a lot of the, the unnecessary death by suicide that their communities are experiencing are because of behaviors that are traceable to racial prejudice. Like, for example, the unwillingness to um, to even consider and study the impact of gun violence on the communities and how simply just the greater availability of guns means that there's a marked um, plague of gun-involved um, deaths by suicide in those communities because it makes death by suicide um, more accessible. But because guns are something that, that are part of the fabric of the communal identity, the, while the amount of gun-involved deaths by suicide is by no means morally acceptable um, to anyone who is struggling as a survivor, uh, as, a, as a family survivor or a friend survivor of death by suicide via, um, via gunshot wound, um, these communities are unwilling to entertain the possibility that the gun could be the problem. Paul also had some incredibly useful insights on the unhelpfulness of vilifying officers and the need to understand that shifting paradigms can be threatening and can call people's very identity into question. We can't minimize or deny the impact of asking people to change their way of navigating the world or altering the way they do their job. I've met very few people who have participated in some sort of armed service to their community or their nation to where their occupation is not a huge part of who they are. Like my sense of vocation is a huge part of what I am and it's it's decidedly nonviolent, committed to nonviolence. Um, and like my my identities as a, as a trans non-binary person of color are a huge part of who I am. And when that gets transgressed, like that hurts a lot. And it's really difficult to reconcile those relationships. But I think if we want healing, 
um, those of us who have the privilege of the emotional capacity to do that work and to be able to step back and say, um, and to remain in community with people as opposed to unfriending or unfollowing or making funny but cruel jokes that are um, non-specific, potentially lazy, um, that demonize people rather than systems. Um, those of us who have the, the physical, mental, emotional privilege of occupying that space have to do the work on behalf of other people who are in greater spaces of pain right now. Who is in greater spaces of pain? Black Americans, absolutely. I'd also say that police officers are in pain. It hurts to be part of an ineffective system, and it's difficult to be vilified, especially when most officers do want to do the right things and are earnest, even if the outcomes leave much to be desired. Now, another element of the criminal justice system, there's no, um, there's, there's no expectation on results. It's the yeah. only profession where you, you don't have to produce results. And which, you know, just imagine it, right? Like imagine being able to go to work for a company or corporation or an individual and never have to produce results. And that's our criminal justice system. We don't have to reduce crime. We don't have to reduce uh, how many people are actually in prisons. In fact, it's spiked in decades since this passage of the Civil Rights Amendments. And we don't have to uh, reduce the amount of police officers that are on the streets. In fact, we encourage more police. We encourage more prisons being built. We encourage more prosecutions. Salah's point highlights a grim reality. We're perpetuating the same problems we originally set out to solve. But I still see those young men who are still angry. They're 14. What the hell do you have to be angry at 14 about? And then you start talking to the kid. He's got quite a bit to be angry about. He's got quite a bit to be angry about. So much of our system revolves around the criminalization of poverty. And if you're in neighborhoods where, they're in, where, where people are poor, you're more likely to get caught up in the cycle. And that disproportionately tends to impact people of color. In any conversation about the criminal justice system, it's essential to speak about parole and cash bail. As they're currently structured, both of these systems are highly problematic. So people can come out of prison and be on parole for decades, right? And, um, you know, again, this is not my opinion. There's um, articles written about this and statistics and stuff that are, you know, make far more eloquent and powerful case than I am doing right now. But um, being on parole is something that, um, <laughs> you know, makes it really, really hard to live <laughs> each day, you know, really, really hard because there is the assumption of criminality there. There is the assumption that you must, uh, you know, every day there's like a moral audit being done on your life. You talk about cash bail reform, the specifics. Cash bail reform is just becomes obviously one of the most unfair things, and that you have literally hundreds of people sitting in jail who are who can be deemed to be low risk simply because they don't have the money. You can have very high risk people walking around the streets 
because they can afford to pay. It's, it's an absurdity that we would say, okay, judge says you have to pay, you have a $5 million bail because I think if you go free, you might hurt someone. So you pay the $5 million and then we let you go free as if because you've paid this $5 million, it's okay for you to hurt someone. Or we say, you know what, I don't think you're going to hurt anybody. Your bail is $500, which you have to post $500. You don't have $500, so we hold you in jail, even though we don't really believe anything's going to happen to you, but because you don't have the $50 to post. So there, yeah. are, At one point I, saw, I heard there were 1,500 people um, scattered around Pennsylvania who were sitting in behind bars or more over because of $1,500. Wow. Under, under $1,500 owed. I mean, it's it's astounding the number of people who are held in jail because they can't post a, a very small cash bail, and it's and it is really un, un, unthinkable that we would let high, very risky people out and to walk amongst us just because they have a lot of money. Well, and when you talk about like these systemic issues, I mean, the longer someone is in jail, the longer they're, I mean, even to use your friend as an example, like it could be a technicality, it could be an issue, but sort of the longer that that person is kept out of the workforce, the larger that economic disparity becomes. You're right, because you go to jail for nine months and you come out, and now you have to explain to employers why you're in jail for nine months, even if you really, even if it was a technicality. The first thing thing you have to explain to every employer, even if they don't background check you, they're going to ask, what were you doing for the last nine months? And you were in jail. So. Right. And bills accrue. We have to get better at understanding the power disparities that promote the criminalization of blackness. We need to start acknowledging racial biases and working against them if we want a safer, more just society. Hi, this is Anna Marie. Daryl and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844-888-8148 and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes. Senator Street has a perfect illustration of how the system fails black and brown people, especially those without economic means. In the Senate, there was, a, there was all this discussion that um, all drug dealers, even petty, even small-level drug dealers, were criminals destroying society. And all people using drugs were the victims of these, of these drug dealers. And that sounds pretty sounds pretty basic. People say, you know, street, how could you take issue with that? Well, I, I brought up during Senate hearings one time. I said, and that was a true story. Um, and I taught a, a kid in my neighborhood says, hey, Miss Senator, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, yeah. I just got into the Senate. He said, every day these kids drive around here when I walk to the corner store and I got my hoodie on. They asked me if I could get them any drugs. They're trying to get pills, usually Percocets. Hmm. I tell them I don't have any Percocets. Why would they ask me that? But a different group of kids, mostly middle-class college kids in nice cars, drive by, and somebody asks me every day. They're willing to pay a lot of money for these pills. And, uh, I, I mean, I know where to get them, but I don't go get them. 
even though with the money they're trying to pay, even if I bought them on the streets and resold them to them, I could make a lot of money. I ain't really trying to get caught up in all that. And he says, if I do, if I do sell them some pills, everybody's going to be like, I did something wrong to them, and they're, and they're the, uh, like, and I'm, and I'm, I'm messed up. But don't nobody say nothing to them for driving around the neighborhood and asking people if they could get get them some pills. You have middle class people with a lot of money driving around the neighborhood, most young kids, you know, but say yeah. 19, 20 years old, asking kids that are 15, 16 years old to get them drugs and offering more money than their parents might make in a week in a say for a single transaction and trying to tempt them into going to find them some drugs. But if they find them the drugs and they and the and the cops were to intercept that transaction, our system says that the people supplying the drugs are in fact the crim are are the more are the morally more reprehensible and culpable people than the people who came to them every day and asked them to find them drugs, tempting them with more money than they had. Now, the kid in my story, he never sold any drugs. How do we make things better? I'm not sure there are any easy answers, but I know that cash bail and probation reform are some of the ways that we can change the structural inequities that keep the system unfair and unjust. On a more individual level, de-escalation training is essential. Can you make a healthy decision uh, around a a racial encounter uh, in less than two minutes where you would feel as if you walked away holding on to your values, believing in your own sense of social justice, but having acted in commensurate with those values? So exposure and practice prepare young people or adults for unpredictable racial moments that can be highly stressful and can debilitate our sense of worth or or a sense of inferiority. So we just practice scenarios that folks tell us they run into and we expect them to be mindful through it and also um, go over it often and then uh, come up with strategies they wish they could have done that they didn't do. and there's a lot of research on behavioral rehearsal that the more you actually get a chance to, to go through and practice, the better you are the next time it shows up. I believe that any training in real life capacity from your personal experience, your life experience, and very importantly, professionally trained de-escalation tactics will help reduce negative police interactions up into including the use of deadly force. Officers who undergo de-escalation training, training designed to assist them in dispelling tension and reducing the need to resort to violent methods of subduing suspects, rehearse stressful situations so they can be better prepared to deal with them if and when they arise. Another important intervention that has been shown to have a positive impact is tracking racial profiling and making officers accountable for the ways in which their biases are infiltrating their administration of justice. When they actually started capturing how much they were racially profiling, they were letting go um, people who violated the law, who were white at higher levels. Um, I don't think there are any systems really, really good at capturing the actual levels of discrimination in that regard. 
But there are a lot of police officers who really want to do well at this. So it's not it's not an issue that police are, are bad people. But um, the encouragement of um, we can't do enough to improve those systems. I think I think it's great that now you see more um, accountability and more transparency uh, within the actions of officers. Um, that I mean, that, look, the implementation of uh, mobile cameras and body-worn cameras has been great. The only thing that we can do in order to change people is to create structural things that encourage the right type of behavior. And usually that happens in the format of finding ways for the government to incentivize behavior that promotes a more racially equitable society. Like, if you really want to change the heart of racism, you have to change the heart of a person. And, and, and that's the thing. You can't change anybody's heart, um, especially with an argument. Again and again, when I spoke to people about a better system, they emphasized the need for vulnerability, empathy, and respect. The work of any sort of reconciliation along the lines of the basis of identity requires vulnerability. A vulnerability that we are told is not a value um, of the American way of being. Part of me that wants to just say, just ignore the American way of being and try it. The part of me that actually believes in the work that I'm doing and wants it to actually happen says, that's so hard. It's so hard even to share like a little bit of oneself with another human being because there is the possibility of being hurt. I won't claim to understand anyone else's pain because sometimes I can't even understand my own. I wonder how you navigated that line because, you know, here you are a woman, you know, a white woman coming into the prisons with, I'm sure, like a very diverse male population. Like, mm -hmm. how do you sort of navigate the differences between your experience and their experience and create an environment for safe sharing and openness? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I know we can talk more about the element of race because it's so important when we talk about um, the mass incarceration epidemic in America now. Um, and, that, and it is true, as you suggested, that many of the students I worked with and, uh, and the residents of the prison at large are black and brown men. Um, far more than our white men. Um, so, yeah, and I was going in there as a white woman. Um, and so the key for me was always and is still um, this one, um, uh, I guess I'll call it a phrase, um, that was kind of my motto, I guess, in both my teaching of the essay and in later in doing Songs in the Key of Free, and that is, I reclaim the goodness that has been denied me. And that brings us all to our most basic humanity. Reclaiming our basic humanity is the beginning of a way forward, the beginning of the true end of a system of race-based discrimination. Despite all the ways in which the current system is broken, 
Those I interviewed had a lot of answers about how to make things better. And they also had hope. I'm a big proponent of um, a diverse workforce. I'm a big proponent of um, opportunity. For those who are on a daily basis viewed as criminals, viewed as unworthy of our respect and of our love, those are the ones who we need to look to to see how exemplary they have made their lives. And our public policy needs to always move towards um, both equity in the present and correct and correcting the, uh, the ills of the past. If we can do that, I think as a society we're going to get better and better. I think stories like yours will help people uh, just look at things differently. And, and, and I'll tell you something, my last thought. Um, American society really does, in the long run, I mean, we have spikes of irregularities in elections. But over the course of history, as people become more um, empathetic to other people's situations, we have always become a better society um, that was more inclusive and, and more just. And I'm encouraged that in this space, over the course of time, that's going to happen. We Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Captain Edward Cobbs Jr., Russell Murray, Dr. Howard Stevenson, Salah Muhammad, August Terrier, Senator Sharif Street, Superintendent Christopher Flanagan, Paul Reese, and the anonymous aspiring police officer. And to our episode sponsors, Next Level Trainings and Lavin and Associates. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead, featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.